At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. Today, we invite you to join us in our message series and dive deeper into what God's Word has for us today. Thanks, Pastor Eric. It is so good to be with you guys. It is so good to uh, see our kids in the house as well. Can we give our kids a big, big hand? Uh, so appreciate them. Yesterday, my uh, son Judah turned eight years old, and I got a chance to hang out with a group of eight-year-olds. And so if you have not prayed for me lately, pray uh, that I will fully recover. It was an awesome time. We went to this place called Urban Air. I don't know if you've ever heard of it, but it's kind of like one of those trampoline places. And uh, let me just say that it's time for me to hang up my high tops. Uh, I am well beyond trampoline age. Uh, but my, uh, my kids had a, had a phenomenal time. And you know, it's interesting because uh, I got this really, really sweet son. And then I got my other kids. And, um, <laughs> but, but my son Judah is one of those guys where, you know, he had his birthday, had his cake, had, had pizza, his friends over, got all the gifts that, you know, you could, you could want. And uh, at the end of the day, he says, Dad, you know what the best part of this day was? I said, what? He says, being with our family. Yeah, that's right. I said, oh, you know. And uh, I don't think it was a setup. I think it was genuine. Um, but I, I'll just say that there is no greater gift. And I hope the kids in here uh, know this, that there is no greater gift than families worshiping together. How many believe that? Families worshiping together. There's so many values that are passed down from one generation to the next just by worshiping together. I, I grew up worshiping with my parents in church and, uh, and a lot of uh, early on in my faith journey, a lot of uh, my growth was just from me watching them. And praise God that I had a dad who wasn't afraid to sing to Jesus in the car together. Praise God I had a mom who wasn't afraid to uh, pray to Jesus. I, I observed them and all of that was deposited within me. And so today I hope that our kids get a chance to, through observation, because how many know that most, most truth is, uh, is caught even before it's taught, how many believe that? I think that's true through, through observation. We have to reinforce it with teaching, but I pray that our kids will see our values. And man, as I watch those videos, I am so tremendously encouraged about how God is at work in this church, how God is just moving here in this church family. How many uh, think it's pretty awesome, the Joy Thrift Store? How many think that is pretty awesome that they have opened that and serving in the Hamtramck? Talking about Afghan refugees. I mean, it's just amazing to see uh, the impact of that ministry. And so I pray that you would get behind that and then the, uh, the warming center. Praise God for that. Woke up yesterday to negative five degrees. Now, let's be honest about a show of hands. How many thought about relocating at least once? At least once it, it went through your mind. Uh, just stay in Michigan, because if you do, I promise you, you will be 28% tougher than the rest of the nation. We are 28, I've done the calculation. We are tougher than everyone else. But um, I do pray that you will be encouraged to know that the spirit is on the move here and that God is doing some amazing things. Know also, and then I'm gonna get into the word of God, know also that our elders uh, have been praying, our pastors have been praying 
uh, as uh, with you, that God would just reveal our next campus pastor. How many have been praying for that? How many have been praying with us for that? And, uh, and I believe that God is making that progressively more and more clear. But what we're committed to more than anything else is taking the time to be led by the Spirit, not to be led by uh, pragmatics, not to be led by uh, pressure, uh, false timelines, but simply to allow the Lord to bring to us uh, those that he has chosen. And I just believe that God uh, has great things in store and that the best days are ahead. Amen. Uh, before we get into the word of God today, um, I want to pray. And one thing I would have you to join me in prayer about is we're a globally minded church. For all of you young people, just know that God cares about your family. God cares about your school, your city, your community. But God loves the world, the Bible says. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, so that whosoever should believe in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. And as you watch the news, moms and dads, grandmas, grandpas, uh, there are going to be certain times when the story will come up, and it'll be good just to pause and pray as a family. Let's just pray about this. And, and one of the news stories that's been uh, kind of front and center is uh, what's happening in Ukraine, around Ukraine. You guys know that some of the Western allies led by the U.S. are kind of in this stare down with Russia and potential military conflict. Well, we have a, a missionary there. Uh, Igor uh, Fedorovich is there, and he is one of our missionaries, global partners that we've been supporting there. And he's doing amazing work, one of uh, our most courageous leaders. And uh, we connected with him by Zoom this week to say, Igor, how can we pray for you? What's the climate like there for the brothers and sisters in Christ? And he says, it's tense. It's tense. And a lot of people are nervous and afraid. And imagine this. He actually, he and his family have been given the option to leave the country before conflict starts, but he's chosen to stay to pastor his church. How many think that's an awesome, awesome thing? Amen. And I say, Igor, how can we pray for you? And his response was, just pray a few things. Pray for me and my family. Uh, pray for the church. Uh, to continue to remain bold for Jesus, and obviously pray that if it be God, God's will for peace, that there would be no invasion. And I promised I would bring that before God's people. So can we pray as we ask God's blessing upon his word? Father, thank you this morning that we get a chance to worship you and be reminded that you are king of kings. Thank you that you are sovereign over both the affairs of our lives and over all that happens in the world. Nothing happens outside of your authority. Over every square inch of created order, Christ declares mine. It all belongs to you. And so we know that the heart of kings are in your hand. But before we pray for kings and those that are in elected positions, we pray for your bride. We pray for the church. Thank you for Pastor Igor. Thank you for his faith and faithfulness. Thank you for his family. Lord, we do pray that you would strengthen them by your word and that they would sense your spirit near. We pray for peace in Ukraine. We pray that if it be your will, that there would not be an invasion. But Lord, I do recognize that your word says that in the last days that there would be wars and even rumors of wars. And so Lord, I pray that if this does happen, if it is a part of your redemptive timeline and plan, 
that your church would be courageous and bold and that a new generation would see the faith of your church and that, God, there would be even revival, that many more would come to faith in Christ. We pray, Lord, certainly uh, for rulers to bow their knee to the kingship of, of Jesus. You are King of kings. You are Lord of lords. Now, Father, bless this time together we have in your word. And I pray that you would uh, speak to us even today in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen and amen. One of my favorite TV shows of all time is Undercover Boss. How many like that show? Undercover Boss. There are so many heartfelt moments, you know, bring the Kleenex to every episode. You guys know how this show works. There is uh, some corporation that's featured every week and uh, someone from the uh, C-level management goes undercover at one of their branches, divisions, franchises, or locations so that they can and see how the company's doing from the ground floor. Typically, they meet these hardworking employees. They have uh, challenges in their lives, just like you and me, and the employees get a chance to make an impression upon a boss, although they don't know it's the boss. The boss has had a, a makeup artist that uh, has recreated them in a way that you would not know it was them. They've changed their name and come up with some story uh, on why they're there. But then towards the end of the show, they reveal the big reveal that I was actually the CEO or the CFO, and I was undercover, and then uh, they typically hook up uh, the employees with all these wonderful things. I'm paying for college. I'm paying off your mortgage. How many wish that would come to your job? I've mean, been praying, Lord, let the boss find me. But there are some uh, cringe-worthy moments if you watch it long enough. Such was the case a few years ago when me and my daughter, who watches it together, uh, were, were watching uh, the episode on Boston Market. How many have heard of Boston Market? Where their chief brand officer went undercover at one of their franchises and uh, was working there. And one of the assistant managers named Robbie obviously didn't know who this was. And so he was uh, far too transparent. I'll put it that way. And he shared with the chief brand officer how much he hates the customers, how much he hates the company. He says the worst customers are the seniors and the children because they don't even know what to pick from the menu. I mean, he, he was terrible. It was so bad that the boss had to reveal herself early to him just to fire him and send him home. But when he realized that this was no trainee he was dealing with, but this was the boss, I mean, no, his tune totally changed. Oh, I was just having a bad moment. I really do love the customers, especially the seniors and the children, uh, but it was not uh, it was not in time. He was fired and he was let go. But it reveals something about our hearts. In watching that episode, it's easy to become critical of a character like Robbie until you realize that all of us run the risk of behaving differently when we realize we're in the presence of powerful or affluent people. And we act differently sometimes and even treat people differently when we feel like they don't have much to bring to the table or much to offer us. Well, this is not just a contemporary problem. This is a historic problem that has plagued the body of Christ and humanity broadly for a long, long time. And this is exactly what James wants to talk about 
with us today. Let's turn to the book of James chapter two. We've been journeying through this small letter and in this letter, what James, who was the half brother of Jesus, what what James wants to do is share with us wisdom on how to live a life that honors God. I like to describe James this way. James is a wise old sage. He is up in years, he has lived life, he grew up in the home of the Messiah. Just imagine what advantage that gives you. He also was trained in the Torah, what we would call the Old Testament scriptures. And clearly from his references, he loved the book of Proverbs because he references that book more than any other book of the Bible. How many love the book of Proverbs? It is, uh, I, I honestly believe, the greatest collection of wisdom that the world has ever seen. Not just in antiquity, but in our day as well. The other reference that he often goes to is the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes, that really emphasizes on how now shall we live. What James uh, assumes, what he assumes is that his readers know the gospel. So he's not debating the gospel here. What he is doing is asking, are you living the gospel? Are you living out your faith in Christ? And so it's like James is maybe picture a wise family member or maybe picture a wise friend. And it's like he's sitting at a table in a chair with a cup of coffee, picture the steam coming from the cup, but there is a chair across from him, and it's like he's saying to us, pull up a chair, I wanna talk to you about life. Now last week, if you were with us last week, he talked to us about possessions, and how we should not allow our life to be defined by possessions, that poverty or prosperity don't ultimately define us. And I think it was appropriate that he did, because his original audience were a group of people who would have been prosperous in one season, but because they professed faith in Christ, they probably would have become social outcasts, having opportunities and doors closed to them because of their faith in Jesus, and they would have lost a lot. But he says, don't worry, wherever you are on the economic spectrum, that your virtue or your condemnation does not depend on your economic standing, that ultimately what determines your eternal destiny, your virtue or your condemnation is your faith in Christ, your relationship with Christ. How many know that our faith in Christ is, is the number one thing that defines who you and I are? How many believe that with all of your heart? That the greatest identity label for who you are is not your geography or your ethnicity or even your gender. Those are all secondary social identity markers. That your primary social identity marker is that you are in Christ. How many thank God that you are his and that he is yours? Amen? Amen. Praise the Lord. Well, now he switches his discussion or conversation to begin to talk to them about how they treat others across the economic spectrum. All right. We're going to read a tough passage. Everybody take a deep breath. All right. Inhale, exhale, let's go. Verse number one. My brother, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, 
And if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have, not the, have you not then made distinction among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor and, not the, and are not the rich, rather, the ones who oppress you. And the ones who drag you in the cord are not uh, they, uh, are they not rather the one who, ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called. Now James is doing something that is kind of the next step in our understanding of what the Bible teaches about how we should treat the poor. Most of us were trained, if you've been a Christian for any amount of time, uh, with the thought that we are supposed to give to the poor, care for the poor. But what James is saying is far more than that, we're supposed to treat them without distinction, showing no favoritism to them just because they have riches or wealth or means, but we're supposed to embrace them like a brother. And let's go back to the top because I think this starts off with a very compelling statement. He says, my brothers show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. That word partiality in the Greek means to either receive by the face or to judge by the face. What he literally is saying in the Greek, which would have been the language that he wrote and spoke in, is don't judge anyone by their face. We've all heard the statement, don't judge a book by its cover, right? Don't judge people by external appearance. Now, how many know that that is hard? Now, every single one of us have been discipled by our culture to judge people by the face. What were you told about the faces of people? You know, as I read this, it was with deep conviction. Honestly, I come to this moment with a pretty significant amount of humility because I recognize how often I violate what James advises us here. He's saying if you're a Christian, you're going to have to do the hard work of rising above our culture's training to judge people by the face. From the time we're born, we're taught to trust certain faces and not to trust other faces, aren't we? You know, you're, you're a kid and you're taught, you can trust mama's face, you can trust daddy's face, but what do you do with a tra- st- uh, stranger's face? You don't talk to strangers, right? And who are strangers? People we don't know, but probably more specifically as we get discipled by culture more, people who look differently than us. And in a culture that is so divided socially like ours, We're taught to trust certain faces and not to trust other faces. But here, James is saying, don't judge people by the face. 
It's interesting, in preparation for uh, this, uh, this message today, I was doing a little research and I ran across this article by uh, the Business Insider, which is a periodical written, as its title uh, assumes, to those who are in uh, professional class and it uh, writes to them about how they can succeed more in business. Well, uh, Drake Bear is one of their journalists and he wrote about research concerning how attractiveness in people makes a difference in their income. Listen to these words. He says, while we like to think that people get ahead because of some magical combination of effort, talent, and knowing the right people, research shows that success is partly skin deep. Studies show that you're more likely to get hired if you look well-groomed and, uh, and uh, I'm sorry, if you look well-groomed and uh, good-looking, that, that attractive people make 12% more money than less appealing folks, and that attractive people bring in more money than their peers over the course of their career. Indeed, according to just published research on the congressional midterms, more attractive candidates are more likely to be elected. Psychologists call this the beauty premium. Essentially, the income gap between attractive and unattractive people is comparable to the gap between gender or ethnicities. Think about that that we live in a culture that rewards or gives a premium for attractiveness. And our culture defines attractiveness across certain cultural spectrums. And here James is saying that that's not new, that that is something that has plagued humanity and the body of Christ is meant to be different. So what does he specifically warn against? He specifically warns against us not measuring people by what they can give to you. Verse number two, if a man is wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly. Now let's pause there for just a moment. Now he's putting us in an ancient church setting. Now, ancient church setting, if we're going to do this properly, is not like the building we're in right now. They didn't have the edifices with the uh, placards outside. It would have been more like a house church, kind of awkwardly, uh, awkward seating because it wasn't set up for a formal assembly, but that's where the body of believers would have gathered together. And imagine someone knocking at your door. Now, you got two people knocking at your front door, showing up for church, for the gathering, for worship. One person comes and they are dressed beautifully. They're of the aristocrat class. They're of the upper echelons socially. What would have been your thinking? This probably is a person who is safe to let in. When he says wearing a gold ring, it's not a bad translation, but the actual translation is that their fingers are dripping with gold. This person would have been showing their wealth on the outside, and they're showing up to worship. You probably would be excited that someone from the upper crust of our society wants to learn more about Jesus, wants to know more about Jesus. Certainly let them in. And then following behind them would have been a person who um, 
is disheveled. Their uh, clothing, according to James here, is uh, quote-unquote shabby, a person who shows up with shabby clothing. And he's literally saying to to them, don't pay more attention to the one than to the other. Now, what would have been the temptation? Well, the temptation would have been that the person with more wealth has more to offer. Because if they join our fellowship, uh, we not only are maybe seeing an increase in generosity to our fellowship or to the cause of Christ, and you can kind of rationalize that and, and, and say, well, that would allow us to be able to do more work and more outreaches and spread the gospel uh, further throughout our region. And you could have also said that not only would they have added more income to our fellowship, but they would have increased the credibility of our fellowship, right? Because someone from the upper crust of society, now they join, now we're legitimized because at this point, Christianity is not seen as socially acceptable. It's not like today where uh, 75 or 70% of our society, depending on what report you read, uh, feels like Christianity is uh, the religion of our nation. It's not like today where politicians have to declare themselves to be Christians in order to be socially acceptable, even if they're not. It's not like that. And to the original audience, they would have heard this as, man, what a great opportunity. What a great opportunity. And then this poor person comes behind them. How would they have seen that person? Certainly as a drain on resources, this person's going to need from us more than give to us. And what would the culture think if we were just a group of people who didn't have much social status? But do you see that from the very beginning that the church was meant to be countercultural? That the church was meant to be counterintuitive? The church was meant to be an assembly that broke all the cultural norms, that went against all the cultural barriers. What James is saying is that the kingdom is not like the rest of the world, that to be in Christ means to be different. And we're going to break down all of those cultural barriers, the gender barrier, the ethnic barrier, and yes, the class barrier. And all of these barriers are broken down in Christ. Now, notice is what he grounds his theology in, or let me just be more specific, what he grounds his sociology in, because he's giving us how we should order ourselves socially as a group of people. He goes back in verse number one and grounds it all in the lordship of Christ, that because Christ is Lord, you should live this way. Because he is the Lord of glory, you should live this way. In other words, what do we learn from the life of Christ? Now imagine if we would have judged his kingship by whether or not he was dripping with gold when he came. Well, none of us would have accepted him because he didn't come like a normal king would come. He didn't come as as we would expect a king to come. He wasn't born in a palace, was he? He was born in a manger. He wasn't uh, uh, dressed in fine linen when he came. No, he was dressed in swaddling cloths, the Bible says. He wasn't born among royalty, was he? No, he was born among the animals. 
This is our king, our savior. He was hung on the cross as a peasant thief. He was rejected as an outcast. He was not treated as royalty, but yet he was a king of eternity, maker of heaven and earth. How many thank God that he flips everything in social order upside down? How many thank God that he chooses those who were outcasts, those who were weak, those who were socially poor, those who didn't have much to bring to the party? I praise God that he does because if he didn't, I wouldn't have gotten in. But praise God, you and I are in the class of the chosen, not because of what we had to offer, but because he offered much to us. How many praise God for that truth? Amen? Notice that he also grounds this in a thought that we wouldn't uh, normally embrace, and that is that the poor have much to give us. You think, naturally, we've been trained to think that the rich have much to give us, but he is saying, no, 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 don't, don't think that money is the highest commodity or, or gold is the greatest good. No, he says in verse number five, listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? Notice what he says. He says that the poor have an even more valuable currency and commodity, and that is faith in Christ. How many have ever gone on a short-term mission trip before? How many have ever done that? There are so many times when God has totally disrupted my assumptions where I've said, I'm going to go on this short-term mission trip so that I can be a blessing to a group of people that maybe are at uh, a different place of the economic spectrum, maybe they're poorer than, than we are, only to get there and realize, I need what they have. That the prayer life they have, I need. Anybody ever experienced that? That the faith in God they have, I need. James is not mincing words here. He is saying that the poor have a spiritual advantage often over the rich because the rich often depend on their material resources more than they depend on God. But the poor have a desperation and a hunger that causes them to depend on God and the faith they have in God you need. Has not God chosen those who are poor in this world to be rich in faith? How many want to be rich in faith? If I were to give you the option of whether or not you could have more zeros in your bank account or more faith in your heart, which one are you choosing? Don't answer quickly. Most of us, if we're honest, we go for the zeros more than the faith, but how many who have been trained according to the word of God know that the richness in faith is far more valuable? That to trust in God, to know Jesus, to have a faith that abides not just skin deep, but in your bones, deep down in your soul, that that is far more valuable in this life and in the life to come than any zeros in your bank account. My friends, the convicting 
admonishment here is do we see Christ as more valuable than we see possessions? Do we see faith in Jesus as more valuable? He is saying treat the poor the same as the rich, not out of some cheap compassion, but because you realize there is something I need from them. And I've watched globally many of our mainline denominations be ripped apart because Western Christians are becoming more and more shallow in our faith. And I've also watched many denominations be rescued by the poor brothers and sisters materially in the faith who are far more dependent upon the word of God. We need one another. And this isn't a statement that, again, either one of us are either affirmed or condemned because of our economic standing. Listen, poverty doesn't make you virtuous necessarily, and prosperity doesn't make you a sinner necessarily. But what James is bringing to the fore is that it is faith in God that is most valuable, and that is what we need to be looking for. Then he goes on in verse number 8 through 13 to tell us we need to measure people by God's standards. Look at what he says. If you really fulfill the royal law, I love that way of describing the word of God. The royal law, according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, there, there it is again, judging by the face, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to those who have shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. There's so much to be said here about the beauty of his writing and his words, one of which is the way he describes the law. How do you describe God, God's commandment? Do you describe it as royal do you describe it as the law of liberty? Do we see it as far superior than the laws of our society, the laws of culture? I hope you do, because society is always giving us its laws, the laws of how to advance and the laws of how to succeed in life, uh, the laws of networking. You scratch my back and I'll scratch yours. The law of, succeed, uh, uh, of achievement and success. All of those laws are taught to you from the time that you are young. But the scriptures present to us the royal law. What is the royal law? The royal law says, love your neighbors as yourself. Every morning when I'm dropping my kids off at school, when I get that privilege, every single morning I get this privilege of dropping my kids off at school, we use the time where we're traveling from home to school as prayer time with dad. And as I pray for my children and with them, and as they pray with dad, 
One of the things that I pray every day is, Lord, help us as the Brooks family, as followers of Christ, to treat others the way we would want to be treated. How many believe that's a good law? That's a royal law. And that's a law of liberty. Well, if that is the case, then how many of us want to be judged by our externals? I certainly, as I get older and look in the mirror, don't want to be judged by my externals. One day we were going through some boxes and my daughter happened to come across our old wedding photo album and she said one of the most insulting things she ever said, Dad, Mom, who are these people? I said, that's us. She said, no, these people are skinny and they have hair. I said, give me the album and go to your room. The fact is we change over time, don't we? Many of us don't fit the same things we did in high school or college. And that should tell us something, that we don't want to be those who, like our culture, judges people by the face or judges people simply by external appearances. But we want to be people who uphold the royal law, the law of liberty, and who love people according to their faith in Jesus Christ. And then he closes. And every warning passage, isn't it awesome and I got to end here because we run out of time. But isn't it awesome how every warning passage in the Bible is also followed up by reminding us, us of the extraordinary grace of God extended to us in Jesus? Listen to what he says, verse 12. So speak and so act as those who will be judged under the law of liberty, for judgment is without mercy to those who have shown no mercy. In other words, he's saying that you and I don't deserve mercy. We don't deserve mercy because we show so little of it. But then he concludes with this loving, amazing statement that's a credit to Jesus more than us. Mercy triumphs over judgment. How many praise God for that? The mercy at the cross triumphs over judgment. So he starts with Jesus, he ends with Jesus. Because of Jesus, you and I are accepted. Not because of our bank accounts, not because of our faces, but because of that old rugged cross. Cling to that cross and allow that to be the filter through which you see people. And Jesus says, as much as you have done it, Unto the least of these, my brothers, you have done it unto me. So as we see people who maybe don't fit into the social structures of our day, let us love them all the more because Christ loved us all the more who are unworthy of his grace. And maybe today you don't feel like you are worthy of his grace. He opens his arms wide and he says, come unto me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and you will find rest for your soul. If today you know you need a savior, come to the one who loves your soul deeply. Amen. And let us proclaim that salvation has come until all have heard, until Christ returns. Let's pray. Father, thank you that today is a day of salvation, that today you offer us grace in Jesus. 
But today we can come to the one who doesn't judge us like the world judges according to the face, but you judge us according to the cross. Bless as only you can. It's in Christ's mighty and matchless name we do pray. And all God's people said, amen and amen. Can we stand and can we give him praise, glory, and honor? Can we give him worship today? Amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself today.